So my dad would do these things like, um, I'm backtracking for a second here, but he did this thing where uh, <laughs> he made platinum record plaques with my name on it. And he would say something like, this could be your record labels next platinum album and so, <laughs> genius that's so, genius we so, opened for cheap trick and gary moore and iron maiden so i saw this and recognized this and i said i have two choices i can just change my style and do something that's not me and just pretend or i said music is cyclical and there will be a place for my voice again Welcome to In Search of Excellence, where we meet entrepreneurs, CEOs, athletes, motivational speakers, and trailblazers of excellence with incredible stories from all walks of life. My name is Randall Kaplan. I'm a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and the host of In Search of Excellence, which I started to motivate and inspire us to achieve excellence in our lives. My guest today is Kelly Hansen, the lead singer of the legendary rock band Foreigner, which has had five platinum records and has sold more than 80 million records. Kelly, welcome to In Search of Excellence. Thanks for being here today. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I start my podcast with our family because from the moment we're born, our family helps shape our personalities, our values, and the preparation for our future. You were born in Hawthorne, California. And you grew up in Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, in the area of Los Angeles. Can you tell us about and Hermosa your Beach. parents growing up and Hermosa Beach? Can you tell us about your parents growing up and Ramsey Lewis and listening to pop music on your mom's GTO as you two were riding in her car? <laughs> right. Um, back in the day, um, when your, your parents would uh, go out for a cocktail party or to visit with friends, you would often see them carrying albums under their arm uh, of their personal choice in music. And I remember my parents going out and doing that. And um, Ramsey Lewis Live at the Bohemian Caverns was one of those albums. And I, I grew to really like that album. Uh, there's a great bass solo, uh, stand up bass solo in there. And, you know, and uh, in with the in crowd. And that was really great. Um, but I do have a vivid picture of them walking out of the house with albums under their arm because they would go over and everyone would put their own records on. And while they're having conversation or cocktails, that would be the music in the background, as opposed to putting on the FM radio or whatever. Um, it was just, that was your, your custom playlist was your albums under your arm. Um, and, uh, my mom, uh, with the GTO convertible GTO, awesome car, I don't think she even knew what she had when she had it. And, um, but she was, my mom had one by the way. Oh, really? And you know what? My dad's name is Randall. I forgot to tell you that. That's pretty (laughs) cool. Not many people named Randall. Um, they're not right. And, uh, she always had the commercial pop radio station on in the car always. So whenever we were going around doing errands or whatever, that was always in my ear all the time. And how did those, how did the rock station or the pop station influence you? Which did you like more the jazz Ramsey Lewis, or did you like the pop, whatever was popular at the time? Where was your head at that time? It's a, it's a hybrid, but, um, as now that I'm a lead vocalist, um, I realized that at the time I associated singing with being a singer in front and a band in back. And they weren't necessarily a a group together. It was like a single artist backed by a band or an orchestra or whatever like that. And it wasn't until much later that I realized when I, you know, heard Led Zeppelin and, uh, and the Stones, I was like, oh, there, this is a group. It's not Frank Sinatra out front or Dinah Washington, you know, out front and this collection of faceless people behind them. So it took me a, a while to, to understand that concept. And I think that's different for a singer than it is for a musician. You were, you were in the choir at school. Is that where your interest in singing first developed? And then when you talk about Zeppelin and the Stones, we're talking about Robert Plant and Mick, were they your idols and who you wanted to be? Well, uh, as far as the school choir goes, it was part of the normal curriculum to be, to take a choir class. And one of the reasons that you can talk about later on why we do our 
choir participation stuff is, is connected to that. Um, so it wasn't really something I was seeking out. It was just part of one of the classes that I had to take was choir. And I still remember to this day, the uh, Indian rain dance uh, that we called it back then. Now it'd be, you know, the indigenous or Native American rain dance song that, pe that people would uh, sing to try to make it rain for the crops. And, and I have no idea whether it's real or not, but that's what they told us it was. And um, I think for me, performance wise, early on, there was there was James Brown. There was there was Rod Stewart. There was um, there was Mick Jagger. Um, uh, Robert Plant was later on in my musical understanding because um, I wasn't into heavy groups because I was always listening to pop commercial radio. So, um, but I think performance wise, it was, it was around that kind of performer that, that I spoke of, um, that really kind of said to myself, oh, that's how you entertain an audience. Billy Joel had a music teacher when he was 14 years old that said, this is what you should do in life. And it inspired him and really prompted him to go out and be a musician and gave him the confidence when you were in your choir class, was it? like it is today where the teachers pick you out because you have the best voice and you sing at the graduations and the events and the recitals or did you were you just a regular member of the choir and at that point or nothing quote-unquote special compared to the rest of your classmates i think i had a short solo section in one of the songs i can't quite recall i don't think that i was exceptional in any way um at the time I, I had a high voice, so I remember being in the, the kind of tenor or, or soprano part of the choir. I do remember that. You discovered that you could sing almost by accident. Can you tell us how you were at the beach one day with some family friends and one of the sons had a guitar with him and was a guitarist? And what happened next? This, we, we had two families that were friends. And both families had children and one was uh, an older guy and he, uh, he carried his guitar everywhere with him. So we were at the beach one day and of course he has a guitar with him and uh, we were just sitting there and he said, well, you know, why don't we, why don't we sing a couple songs? You know, so we sang a couple things and he, he invited me to sing with his band. And then a couple months later, I was, I was the lead singer of the band and, um, uh, although there was a lot of growing pains, like I didn't know how to use my voice and every, every show, my voice was done after that. It was like, um, so I had to learn how to use my voice. I had to take some singing lessons and, uh, but I, but at that time it was late in my high school, uh, years and I was starting to have like a mental panic attack about what am I going to do for my future? I had no idea what I wanted to do. I wasn't great academically. Um, I felt that I was smart. Um, and I had had, you know, I had a job in a Mexican restaurant and that kind of thing. But I, that's obviously not what I was thinking of as far as a career to be a dishwasher. So, um, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when I started singing and started getting the response from the fans and I started getting some money, some getting paid to, to perform, I kind of said, well, this is something I seem to be, I seem to have at least some affinity for. I enjoy doing it. I seem to have the ability to do it. So I fell in it, into it accidentally, really. That's, I, it wasn't like this passionate pursuit that, that got me into singing or into the music business. So how old were you when you actually formed that band? What was it called? And what was your first gig like? You hear so many stories about these musicians Starting out, we talked about Led Zeppelin. All these bands play at the Troubadour. They seem to be, they seem to all have to go through there. But even way before then in high school, what kind of gigs were you getting? What was the first one? And when did you start getting paid? Right. What was the feeling where you said, oh my God, I actually got paid for singing tonight? Yeah, I don't remember that feeling. But um, the first gig I played was at a, they called it was a co-rec center, like a recreation center that was a park. that was basically a building in a park that could be used for different public functions. And so the park services would have a, like a teen dance night and they would hire a band and we would do cover songs. And that was our, and it was playing to like 12 year olds and 13 year olds, or whatever. 
and I was about 17, I think. And, um, um, so I remember we did, uh, we did, we played, the uh, junior highs, high schools, high school dances. I played my own high school and, uh, at Miracosta high school in Manhattan beach. And, um, uh, we came back to the dressing room after the show and all of our stuff had been stolen by my own schoolmates. <laughs> uh, that doesn't give you any kind of weirdness in your head, does it? Um, no, but we, I mean, we, we eventually ended up playing all over Southern California. Uh, we, we played a military base. I think it was in, um, in the Yuma, Arizona, Yuma. Is and that- this is still while you're in high school. We're still in high school. Well, phase, I, phase right I, now? I, t- I took, I took the GED to get out of high school early because I was gigging. So, um, I took the tests and all the, it's a pass or fail kind of thing. It takes three or four hours. And, and so I passed apparently. And, um, because we were doing gigs and you'd be up till two or three at night, either finishing the gig or traveling home from a gig that's far away. And, but I remember I was talking about this gig. We had this military base and we get there and we start setting up and, um, uh, it's a, like at a non-commissioned officer's party. People are having dinner. And I'm looking around. Everybody's in these dress uniforms and with their wives in gowns. And and I had a funny feeling about that because I knew what kind of music we did. Come to find out that we, we were a top 40 band, but they thought we were a band that did songs from the 40s. So <laughs> we we did roll out the barrel a lot that night. <laughs> You mentioned you didn't graduate from high school. You got a GED. So many musicians, their passion starts when they're in their teen years, their high school years, and they have a decision to make. Do I go to college or don't I go to college? And so few musicians actually make it professionally where they can earn a living. Talent often doesn't have a single thing to do with it. There's a lot of other things, as you know, and we can go into that later in the show today. But what's your advice to those listening today who are thinking to themselves, hey, I'm in high school, do I really need to go to college? And what would you be telling your best friend's kids or if you decide to have kids of your own, what's your advice to them? Should they go to college or should they pursue their dreams and go try to be a musician and make a living at it? Well, I would prefer to relate my story, uh, which was, college was probably not an option for me. We didn't have that kind of money. Um, and I had no idea what I wanted to pursue. And I happened to fall into something that started working for me. Um, so, um, but I do know that if you choose to pursue music as a career, you better really, really want it because you're going to sacrifice immensely in many areas of your life. Um, and if you're fortunate, you won't be a, a huge pop or rock star when you're too young. Um, because it's very difficult at a super young age to be able to handle the weight of fame and or, and or money. Bless you. And, uh, Thank you. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I had a modicum of success when I, joined my band hurricane. But before that, there was a lot of struggle. And, and I, I learned some really big lessons with hurricane. And I'm, I now say to myself, I, I was, I think I was really fortunate that I wasn't, the band wasn't bigger than it was, uh, at the time. Cause I'm not sure how I would have developed as a person with, um, with that environment around me. So, but if you really want to do it, be prepared to sacrifice. And that means you don't get to have all the nicest clothes and shoes and jewelry and all those things that young people seem to want. Um, you're going to have to work your ass off and you're going to have to pay your dues. And, uh, and that's how my era did it. There are some obviously newer ways to do things that include some shortcuts or not having to work as hard. There are some TV shows that you can become a star overnight, you know, on a, on a contest show, but the, the odds are still slim. I think it's harder to start a band now than it was back in the day. I think it's harder to get attention when there is a, uh, a glut of music and artists out there who 
some some of them would never have gotten a chance to even have a band back in the day because the only bands that really got record deals were bands that were really good. And now anyone can make a record in their bedroom and doesn't mean they should. So think about those things. And um, yeah, I think it's really good to follow your passions and understand what you want and know what you want, because that's what it's going to take. And I also had parents who were very supportive of me. They said, whatever you want to do, we're behind you 100 percent. And um, that was very helpful to me because I didn't have someone trying to talk me out of it and get a regular job and all that kind of stuff. Are you looking for your next great gift to surprise a friend, colleague, or loved one? Bliss Beaches makes the perfect gift. This best-selling bright and beautiful coffee table book by Randall Kaplan features stunning drone photography from exotic beach locations around the world. It's the perfect housewarming gift, a great addition to any home or office, and a fun and creative alternative to bringing a bottle of wine to somebody's house for dinner. Bliss Beaches is available for purchase on Amazon, where it has glowing reviews and a five-star rating. Get your next amazing gift and order a copy of Bliss Beaches by clicking the link on our show notes. Could you have been successful if your parents had said, I really don't want you to do this, go get a regular job, a nine-to-five job, or go be a doctor I, I, or lawyer it's hard, or it's hard for me to answer a hypothetical, but um, I can't help but think if I didn't have their support that my beginning would be the same as it was something in all of us about our parents believing in us. And I've said this on a bunch of my previous shows. I think someone once told me the four most powerful words in the human language are, I believe in you. And there's nothing like your parents saying that to you and giving you the confidence to go out and do and be whatever you want to be. I think that that's partially true. I think sometimes it takes a while for that phrase to circulate around your mind and your experience and then sometime down the road, you understand how important that was for you. Because I think a lot of times, some you, what, what is said to you when you know everything and you're no more than everyone and you really don't understand anything that an adult says or you, you, some things go in one ear and out the other. I, for me, um, uh, it took a little while for me to really grasp how much that meant. We're going to come back to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in a little bit, but (laughs) walk us through the evolution of your, I mean, that's what everyone loves to hear about, right? What was it really like? But we're going to get there. Right. What was the evolution for you? We'll go up through Hurricane and tell us kind of what you did next. So you're in this band from high school, and then there's always something that changes. And it's very rare. You got Van Halen, right? They stay together forever. They finally had to change later on in life with David Lee Roth. We'll talk about Foreigner as well and and the change in bringing you in. But what's the evolution here in terms of you're in this high school band, you're touring, you're at Air Force bases. Uh, people confuse what you're doing. But what, what <laughs> happened next? How did you grow? Um, I left that band. And then for a while, I had my own uh, bands. Um, I had uh, the Kelly Hansen band. I had a band called The Last Tango. Um, and, you know, played around LA cause LA was famous for all of the clubs where original bands, unsigned bands could play. And, uh, my father was my manager and we had a, um, a fan club, um, where, oh man, I think back to how archaic this was. We had a fan club where we had uh, people could sign up on a three by five card and they'd give us their name their address and their telephone number. And then we compile them on a list in handwriting or on the typewriter. And then whenever we had a show, we'd have to make the calls or send out a little flyer. So I used to stuff envelopes with flyers to send out to our fan club to say, we're going to be playing here or there. Or, and, uh, and s- some of those great people still, uh, go to shows that I perform at today. And that was 45 years ago. Um, so that's wild. Um, and then um, I occasionally did sessions, started doing some session things. Um, and if my, if my memory doesn't fail me, I, um, I started playing in a, uh, another cover band, a couple of them. 
And this is where I started to make regular money. Uh, we were a popular cover band called the Riz Kids. And um, we played all around Southern California and we would play five to six nights a week and we would play five hours a night. So that's 45 minutes with a wow. 15 minute break every hour. And my voice would be trash at the end of the week, you know, for obvious reasons. And, um, but that's where I was honing my skills as a performer and trying to motivate people and to have a good time and have fun. And, and because that translated to management of the club or the owner saying, Hey, these guys really get people up and going, and then they're going to have you back and pay you more the next time. So that was really my focus was really try to find the signals from the audience or the environment or whatever it is to get people involved in the show and, and get going. That turned into a kind of a, a bag of tricks of sorts of things that I have at my disposal to, to motivate an audience. And, um, and that was, a, I wouldn't say many, but several years of me doing that. And I would sing everything from, from summertime, from Porgy and Bess to Van Halen. And, um, um, so th that was, there was a lot of learning going on at the time. Um, and that went all the way up into the hurricane years. So when you went through these bands and you started your own band, did you say, Hey, I'm Kelly, I've got a good voice and look for people through word of mouth. Hey, are you a guitarist? We need a drummer. And then as you started playing in this cover band, did they find you and how did it work? Well, I was friends with a guy um, named Ross Bolton, who was a great guitarist who's sadly passed. And he owned the store at a place called the Guitar Institute of Technology called GIT at the time. There have now been numerous iterations of that. But at the time, it was where a lot of guitar players would go. It was a school in Hollywood where guitarists and bass players and drummers would go to learn music. And with that, they would be playing with each other in different setups. There was, there was a recording studio there and it kind of got you familiar with the musical entertainment ground. And, um, so he played with me for a while and I met other musicians through GIT and, um, and through various other sources, but no one was really coming to me. In fact, it was very difficult for me to have my own band because I just had to hire everybody to play. And when you're not making a lot of money, that's difficult to do because it wasn't a band. It was really me hiring a band. So you got to pay everybody. And um, that became one of the huge hurdles in, in doing that for me. So walk us through Hurricane, which before Foreigner was your big band and you had a lot of success and you had things crash very, very quickly. And, and I'd love to talk about the impetus of the band, the rise of the band, and then you uh, two thirds of a way through your tour and getting a call from your publicist right. with respect to two different album covers and then things just crashing immediately. Yeah. Um, I was playing in a cover band and um, there was a music magazine Oh, I forget what it was called in, in LA. I think it was, maybe it was music connection magazine and, um, which I later, many years later was on the cover of, but I was looking through music connection magazine because that's where a musician or singer would, would look for ads for musicians or singers, um, bands looking for singers or people looking for guitar players. And, and there was all sorts of associated musical advertisements for guitars and drums. And there were articles about the music business. And so it was, if you were a musician trying starting out, that was what you would read. And I saw an ad for um, these guys looking for a singer to make a band. And uh, the drummer was the one um, doing the, doing the ad. So I responded to the ad and I remember I was living in a bungalow apartment in Burbank uh, a one bedroom bungalow. And, uh, I remember this drummer coming to my apartment and we sat down and talked about, you know, what they were doing, what I was doing and could we do something together? I ended up, uh, he ended up having, um, Tony Cavazzo and, uh, Robert Sarzo 
who were brothers of the two guitar player and brother um, and a bass player of Quiet Riot. And uh, so Tony and Robert came down to my top 40 gig where I'm sure I was wearing some sort of tights with leg warmers and leather capizios and, <laughs> and a cutoff shirt. Who knows? Um, so they came to the show and they liked what they saw. So we got together and, and we started out uh, writing songs in an office that was closed at night, obviously, because it was an office. So during the day, regular office, things were going on. But Robert knew the either the office manager or someone who owned the company or whatever it was. And they let us use one of the empty rooms at night to write songs. Um, and we started moving forward with material. And then um, um, we somehow got a manager. I forget how that happened, but um, we ended up getting different rehearsal rooms. Um, and uh, we had some, in, some investor money here and there, people who would kind of backed us a little bit. Uh, so we could have what they call a lockout. That's where we had a, basically you had this rehearsal room from when the doors open in the morning to when the doors closed at night. And you could go in there any day or however many days a week you wanted to and rehearse. And so we rehearsed in a, in a, a lockout across the parking lot from Sound City, which if you've seen Dave Grohl's documentary, you know about it. Um, and um, and Goodnight L.A., which was right next to, to Sound City. And. Um, so we were rehearsing there and, and we had to get rid of the original drummer. He wasn't working with us musically. So the manager um, had been working as a tour manager, I think it was for Lita Ford. And um, she had this drummer that he thought might be a good fit for us. So we decided to meet with this drummer. And so he comes to Sound City and he had a black 68 El Camino with a big block 396. He had black drums, he had black clothes, and he had black hair. <laughs> and his name was Jay Shellen. And so that's when this really became Hurricane, um, because we finally came together as a unit that, that worked musically together. And then we did um, uh, some demos with uh, a producer called uh, Kevin Beamish, who did a lot of stuff with Ario Speedwagon. And... Um, we had we had a contract that that he was going to do some demos with us and we had to agree on the mixes in order for him to get paid and we didn't like the mixes um he literally said to me one day no one listens to the drums anyway because i was making a comment if i didn't like a certain drum sound um so we left the contract but we still had the tracks so we took the tracks around and mixed them ourselves uh, and we took them around to all of the record labels. My previous experience with record labels was my father trying to con con concoct ingenious ways of getting record company A&R men's attention. Uh, and A&R means artist and repertoire. They, they had these guys who did or didn't have legitimate knowledge of songs or music, but they had the job at the company to go out and find bands and talent and songs. So my dad would do these things like, um, I'm backtracking for a second here, but he did this thing where um, <laughs> he made platinum record plaques with my name on it and the song or whatever. And, he's, and he would say something like, this could be your record labels, next platinum album. And so, <laughs> Genius. That's so, genius. So he would, he would send those out with the demo song, you know, the demo tape. Um, but that was years before and it never really ended up in anything, but it did, it did end up getting me um, connected with a very, very good attorney. And so over the years, I was very, very judicious in my asking for help from this attorney and he never, he never charged me, but he would always give me good advice and, and connected me with some people too. This episode of In Search of Excellence is brought to you by Sandy.com. S-A-N-D-E-E.com. We are a Yelp for beaches and have created the world's most comprehensive beach resource by cataloging more than 100 categories of information for every beach in the world, more than 100,000 beaches in 212 countries. Sandy.com provides beachgoers around the world with detailed, comprehensive, and easy-to-use information 
to help them plan their perfect beach getaway at home and abroad, and to make sure you're never disappointed by a beach visit again. Plan the perfect beach trip today by visiting sandy.com. That's www.sandee.com. The link is in our show notes. Stay Sandy, my friends. So um, uh, there was a record label called Green World Records, uh, and um, uh, the wife of the president was at one of our shows and convinced her husband to come see the band. And we ended up signing uh, a P&D deal, which was production and distribution. So it's not like we had a full record deal, but they would pay for the production of an album uh, or, and, they would, and they would distribute it through their pipeline. And then um, what we did was we, we, I think we remixed and repackaged the EP and they distributed it for us. And then we went on tour. And we, we, I think we went on tour with uh, Striper and on that, on that EP. Then we came back into the studio to make our first record, which was, um, which was what it was, what my first record with them called. Uh, 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 maybe, you know, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't called, give me a second. Uh, Jeez, that's so stupid. Wow, I'm having two total senior moment right now. Well, anyway, we made we made our first record. And um and we and we went out on the road and we started opening for other bands that were really great. We opened for Cheap Trick and Gary Moore and Iron Maiden. And our second record had our biggest single on it, which was Take What You Want. And then it came time to make our third record. Um, which was Slave to the Thrill with Michael James Jackson producing. And that took a year of our lives. Um, we were doing shows. We had a lockout where we would go and we would write. And there had had a lounge, uh, which was a separate room. So what would happen is that we'd go into the, the big room where the band was set up and we'd everyone would bring in their little pieces of ideas and chunks of ideas and we work on them and we write them and we extend them and grow them into song ideas. And we did that for a year. And right in the middle of that, we had to let our original guitar player go. So uh, then we got Doug Aldrich in, in the band and we continued working on the record and made the record. And the label was telling us, oh, you know, you guys are our priority. We're really going to make you guys, you know, the thing this year. And this is really going to happen for us and blah, blah, blah. So we're out on the road and for the first time ever, we have a junkie, but real tour bus, which we're paying for out of advanced money from the label. So the label has given us money to tour on, but if, if the record starts to make any money, they get paid back before we make any money. So um, we're living off advance money and we had, and we also had to do a publishing advance. So we had, we got advancements on our publishing too. So we're doing everything we can to have enough muscle to get out there on the road and play. And so that's what we're doing. And then, uh, as you read, uh, one day um, I get a copy of a press release from which was now Enigma Records because Green World had folded into Enigma. There was a, a buy in of like uh, $20 million or whatever. And the two brothers that started the original label, who were the genius uh, minds behind the success of that Green World label. Um, one kind of parachuted his way out of that and was no longer the creative director of the, of the label. And the other one who was really in charge of the business end of things, he was out too. So they hired just people to come in and start running the label, which was not really great. Uh, they ran it into the ground. I heard all kinds of stories of alleged uh, uh, misappropriations and and other things that were not necessarily kosher. So uh, we're on the road and I get we, we had we had come to the label before we released the album. We said we have this famous album designer um, and he's done stuff for Rush and really great. And we have this idea for this cover, which was called for the album that was called Slave to the Thrill. Now, remember, it was at a time, it was a different time. And the concept was this woman on this machine that was basically going to provide her with um, uh, sexual gratification. And, and it was very, um, uh, who's the, 
who's the movie director that I'm thinking of? That's right. It's very mechanical, dark kind of look to it. Um, so the label says, oh, my God, we love that idea. It's that's amazing. You know, and so it, they, at the time they paid us, they paid $14,000 for this album cover, which at the time was a lot for a band of our stature. And um, so uh, we did the photo shoot, which was basically a model of this machine that was photographed as a model. Then for the second half of the photo shoot, they take a, a photograph or, an, or, a, or a negative or whatever of that uh, machine. And they had a device in which they could put it over the lens for a new photo shoot. And they set up boxes and crates and had a model up on these boxes and crates to make it look as though she was on this machine in this reclining position. And, um, so we did the photo shoot and it was, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing looking cover. And then I get this, uh, uh, press release from the label while we're on the road promoting that record that the label was now going to release two versions of our album, one with the girl and one without the girl. And they didn't ask us or anything, but what they were afraid of is that the big box stores wouldn't order the album because they were afraid that it looked too sexual. And, um, and I was like, well, that's good. That's controversy we want. You know, that give, that'll bring us notice. And because at the time we were trying to find, how can we find ways to get attention about this band? And we, I remember we'd be on the road uh, and we'd be sitting around the pool on a day off and we'd go, well, maybe one of us should get arrested for doing something. You know, we'd come up with these ideas of how we can get the band noticed. So I'm like, yeah, that's what we want. That's controversy. That'll make news articles. That'll bring attention to the record. People will buy it because people think it's, it's in bad or nasty and, you know, kids love that. So that'd be great. Labels, well, you know, we're scared that they're not going to order the record. So we're going to offer them a version without the woman on it. So then essentially what you have is an album cover with a machine on it. You don't know what's happening. It says nothing. It's just this, they don't even know what it is. So I was heavily miffed at that and, but there was nothing I could do. And then further along uh, down the road, we're playing these shows on the road, opening with all these bands in order to sell records. Then one day I talked to the publicist at that label. She goes, um, they fired two thirds of the staff today, two thirds of the staff. And I said to myself, why are we even out here on the road? We're spending money every day and there's not going to be any records in the stores. In fact, we had experienced that we were going to in stores and they didn't have a record. So people coming to the store couldn't buy a record when we were, when we were in the store signing stuff. So we had to cancel the rest of the tour. And that, and for six months, we didn't know whether we were still on the label or not. We would get no response from the label with our inquiries. So we had to eventually send them a letter that says, if you don't respond to this letter within X and X time frame, we are going to assume that we are no longer with the label. And now we're not making any money. We don't, uh, we're out of our advance money and we're starting to have to like sell equipment and stuff to like, to pay rent and things like that. So, um, you know, after a year of our lives, that's what happened. And it was kind of soul crushing. Um, and it, and it made me, it soured me for a long time uh, uh, about my involvement in the music business. Let's talk about being soured and how we motivate ourselves. And we'll talk about foreigner in just a minute, but there was a period where you were not in a band and you were doing different things. So tell us, what you were doing and um, what right. motivated you to stay in the music business at that point? And what well, were you thinking? Where was your head in terms of your future? Right. Well, concurrent with the label going under and us ha not having a record deal, there was a new style of music that was coming in in the early 90s uh, that was more kind of earthy and and I, I'm not going to just nail it down as grunge, but but it was there was a there was a paradigm shift in popular music and metal was no longer the favored thing. And a high, clean tenor rock voice was not the thing. And I, so I saw this and recognized this. And I said, I have two choices. I can just change my style and do something that's not me and just pretend. 
or I said, music is cyclical and there will be a place for my voice again. I just have to ride this out. So what I decided to do was tackle the other aspects of the recording business that I loved or the music business that I loved, the recording studio. So I, I, it was at the very beginning of home studio technology. And I had been in the studio every day during the making of our albums. And I observed and I learned and I watched because it fascinated me. Uh, so I kind of had some chops to start into that, in that realm. So I started doing engineering, producing and artist development and, I worked with one producer where he would record all the music and I, he, I would record all the singing of whatever the singer was. Uh, and I would sing backgrounds and then I would turn around and I'd give him all the, vo all the vocals back and he'd lay them into his, his mix. And so that was our kind of team setup. Um, and, uh, so that was a great learning experience having to produce vocals. I mean, solely producing vocals. Um, and you learn a huge amount about what's important sonically and how you do stuff. And uh, it's, a, it's a myriad of things. So I did that for a long time, but then as technology grew, more and more people were able to not have to go to a multi-million dollar studio to make a record. People could do it in their house or in the garage. And when that happens, um, people who want to break into that start offering their services to less for less money to the people that you've already been doing work for. They go, oh really, that's what he wants? I'll do it for this. So now the amount of money that starts to being offered for album production starts to slowly sink down as technology advances and everyone can get gear in their house. So it was becoming a, a uh, an issue of diminishing returns um, that you would work harder. There were more demands on you, but you were making less and less money. Uh, and that became a very problematic for me. Uh, it was starting to get really hard around the end of the nineties. And finally, one day I said to myself, you know what I need, maybe I need to go back what I do best. And that's being lead singer. So uh, I, I had a discussion with myself. I said, okay, you're going to start saying yes until you can't say yes anymore. You're not going to turn anything down that you have the ability or the time to do. And everything will be, um, an, an offshoot of a tree that's growing all in the same direction. That's how I pictured it in my mind. So I started researching and looking for things. And the, one of the main reasons I did this is because all my life, all my career, gigs just happened to fall in my lap and I didn't have to even look for them. But now at the end of the nineties, I started hearing about, well, there was this gig and I didn't even get a phone call for it. Like I would have been perfect for that. And no one even thought of me. And believe me, it took me years after singing in Hurricane for anyone to allow me to sing anything other than metal. Um, they thought they pigeonholed me as a metal singer and that's all I was. So it took me years to come out of that. And I started, I started getting out of it by doing backgrounds for other type of music. I would do an R&B background or a pop background vocal or whatever. And it started to slowly work its way into me being allowed to sing again and knowing that I'm not just a metal singer. Um, so I started looking and researching and I, you know, very beginning of my computer time. Well, my computer thing started in 93 ish or something. And then the internet was really, really slow. And I had AOL. And if, if for those of you who don't remember, you would sign on, it would make that noise. And then you'd have to watch an ad load one line at a time, the picture of this ad that would come on the screen. And then finally, once the ad had loaded and they see that you saw it, then you could go to your email or you could go to your, your browser or whatever. It was unbelievably bad. But I was online and I, I heard about, um, and this was in 2004, um, I heard about a charity gig that Mick had done uh, in Santa Barbara with some of the guys from the band. There was uh, Jeff Jacobs, who had been in the band for a while. There was um, uh, Jeff Pilson on bass from Dokken and, uh, and Jason Bonham on drums, along with Tom Gimble, who had been in the band a, lot, a while as well, uh, and Mick. And um, so Jason 
had been in a movie called Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. And so they worked together on that movie. And Jason was the person, one of the people who came to Mick and, and said, Mick, you, you have to do something. You can't just not play these songs anymore. Um, the world has to hear, keep hearing these songs kind of. And Mick had been, you know, reconnected with his family and kind of, you know, figure out things in his life. And, uh, and it had just been dormant and he didn't know what he was going to do. So that, that kind of, uh, encouragement from different people, um, helped to make the decision to start looking for a, a voice for the band. So, um, I knew Jeff Pilson. I had <coughs> been, been to a couple of his parties in the eighties and we weren't close or anything, but we, we knew each other. And, uh, uh, but I also, a friend, a friend, a friend of a friend knew Tom Gimble. So, um, I set up this meet with Tom Gimble. Um, and we got together and I gave him some music that I'd been on. And most of it in the lead vocal form was kind of rock or hard rock or metal stuff. And that's all I had at the time. So, um, he took the stuff and come to find out later that it was, Foreigner was trying to, you know, gear up again. And it takes a while for a machine of that size to fire up again, you know, get all the gears greased and get moving. And Mick was looking for a voice. And I, you know, I found out he had, he was looking all over the world for a voice. And, um, but I, I started to have this back and forth conversation with management. So what they ended up doing was they sent me five Foreigner tracks for five hits of the band. The original recordings, but without any vocals. So someone had taken the 24 <laughs> tracks from the original band tapes. Maybe they'd been converted to digital and they kind of just brought up the, the tracks on a, on a mix and sent them to me to put my voice on, which was fascinating for me as a producer, because I got to hear things on that tape that I never heard in the much played for decades um, radio releases. You just heard things different because they wasn't the same mix. I could hear the this guitar doing something or that, or the keyboards doing something that I hadn't heard before. So that was fascinating. But I spent the next three days diligently um, recording and putting my voice on there and really trying to make it just really fit that stuff. And, um, and I wasn't trying to go, Hey, look at me. I can sing it different because I, whenever I went to concerts, I always loved hearing the melody, the way I learned to love the song and a quality song has a quality melody and quality lyrics and is popular for a reason. So it's not my job to prove how different I am. It's my job to serve the song. So um, that's what I did. And Mick Jones got to hear that CD in New York and they were coming out to LA to do some rehearsal for, I don't know what, um, maybe they were going to listen to other people. That's the only thing I could assume. So I talked to management and I said, can I be the first person that jams with the guys? So there's a little lesson right there. Um, be the first one in because as soon as they find who they like, they stop looking. And if you're a fifth person in, you, they're never even going to know you. So, um, but that was my little get in there early because if they like me, you know, so I went in. And I had all these lyric sheets with me and I was very serious and my hair was much shorter at the time because I would decide to be taken really seriously. And um, we jammed for about an hour and a half. And unbeknownst to me, uh, the sound mixer was recording the rehearsal. And during the breaks, Mick was going in the hallway and listening to the mixes so he could like, hear them very clearly, you know. So um, I left. And I remember distinctly getting home at 6 p.m. And later found out that in that time, they were having a roundtable discussion amongst everyone in the band and with um, common friends like Ricky Phillips, who plays with Sticks, was a guy I had known and worked with a bunch of times during that producing engineering segment of my career. And um, he he really gave me a good review. So that was really nice. So they wanted to find out if I was weird or I was an idiot or what. And so I remember distinctly, I got a call one hour after I got home and they said, we have shows. Um, we're booking shows for this weekend. Can you start rehearsing tomorrow? 
And that's how I got in the band. I had five days to learn. That's, great, <laughs> that's a, that's an incredible story. And then we're going to go how you did 170 shows that year in a minute. But well, we, did, we did, just, only did 75 shows that first year, but we started in March. And you only had five days to, to warm up. Usually you take months to warm up for a tour, right? You're rehearsing and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy because um, everyone thinks they know a song in the shower until you have to sing every first word of every single line of that song. All of a sudden it's like, oh, uh, that's real now. I don't I don't know the song. And so I had um, I printed out. Lyrics, they were in my car. They were in my bed. They were on my couch. They were in my hand. And I 24 seven, I was just memorizing the songs. And it and it took several shows quite a while because I, I would I'd be on stage and all of a sudden I'd have a blank like what the fuck what's the next thing? Uh, because it, I didn't want to use teleprompters or cheat sheets. I thought that was lame. So I said, I have to learn how to do this myself. And if I ever start using a teleprompter, that's it. I will not do that. What would you do when you didn't know the words to a song up on stage? It's hard to remember, fake it. When you're in the shower, you can fake it all you want. Right. I, I, remember, I remember once turning my head to the side of the stage and one of the gals that works for management, her name is Mary Hart. I looked at her and I said, what's the next line? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> so, so sometimes, you know, Tom Gimble was really good um, because I, I could look to my left and Tom would mouth the words to me, you know, and I would go, okay. And then, and then I'd be back on track again. So um, yeah, that was, a, and then I'm, you know, I'm getting my stage legs back after not performing on stage for practically 14 years, not being on the road for that long. Um, and, you know, reacquainting myself with that bag of tools that I mentioned earlier and learning how to work the show and make the show the ebb and flow that it needs to be to be a complete show. So that took a while and uh, it was a daunting time. And, you know, the, the band was at a fairly low ebb popularity wise too. So we had to fight that along with having a new singer in the band. I like doing a lot of depth and research on my guests. It's very important to me. And I love so you mean learning you a lot of my, I over-prepare. <laughs> Than the That's hallmark, great. and yeah, a lot of my guests have said, um, Wow, you know, there have been points that wow, how, how'd you know that? And, and it's fun right. for me to get those comments, right? Well, I everything you brought up is I remember saying at one point or another, so there's nothing that you dug up that I didn't know about was out there. So, but um, I don't often get asked about that stuff. But I've also had people interview them in this, and they say, Well, when you join the foreigners. That's how much research they've done. <laughs> right. You're listening to part one of my amazing interview with Kelly Hansen, the lead singer of the legendary rock band Foreigner, which has sold more than 80 million albums. And his hits include Jukebox Hero, Hot-Blooded, and Feels Like the First Time. Be sure to tune in next week to part two of my incredible interview with Kelly. <laughs>